You're listening to the Roanoke Valley Church Podcast. Today's sermon continues our study through the book of Acts in chapter 24. Guest speaker from the Hampton Roads Church, Tony Millette, preaches about Paul's trial before Felix due to the resurrection of the dead. Falsely accused of being a troublemaker, cult leader, disturber of the peace, and much more, Tony brings out insightful applications for our lives in today's sermon. We invite you to visit our website, RoanokeValleyChurch.org, to learn more about all that God is doing through the Roanoke Valley Church. Be sure to leave a five-star rating as it helps us get the gospel out to more and more people. Enjoy today's sermon, and we'll see you back here soon. He returns to Jerusalem after his third missionary journey. He goes to the temple to join in a purification rite, and he is there accused of bringing a Gentile disciple into the temple, which was a no-no. And so a riot breaks out. Paul speaks before the crowd, and another riot breaks out. And he's rescued by this Roman commander who uh, is desperately trying to figure out who Paul is and what Paul has done wrong. And that kind of leads throughout multiple chapters of really the Roman commander never really figures out what's going on with Paul. But Paul speaks before um, the Sanhedrin after that. That's what you guys covered last week. And another mini riot takes place there in front of the Sanhedrin. Paul is visited by Jesus who tells him to take courage. Um, he's going to be sending him to Rome. And then miraculously, this plot to kill Paul was uncovered by, of all people, Paul's nephew somehow figured this out and was able to get Paul, you know, out of jail. They took Paul up to Caesarea because he was going to be killed. And that's kind of where we find ourselves here this morning. And Paul was clearly having a hard time because of his faith in Jesus. And he is on trial because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And for us, we stand trial um, every day for the gospel, those of us who are Christians, whether it be because we're accused by the evil one, maybe we're accused by people, friends, family, neighbors, coworkers. Sometimes, believe it or not, we can be accused by ourselves, by our own thoughts. We'll talk about that for a little bit. But when we are accused, it's, it's time for us to defend ourselves. And when we do, we have to stand in the same way that Paul stood. Paul stood on the truth of the resurrection, and in those times that we're accused, we must also stand on the truth of the resurrection. Acts chapter 24, verse 1, it says, Five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, and they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. We've enjoyed a long period of peace under you and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order not to weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple, so he seized him. By examining him yourself, you'll be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. And the other Jews joined in the accusation, asserting that these things were true. So the um, title this morning for the lesson is On Trial for the Resurrection. On Trial for the Resurrection, three simple points. The first is a wicked Roman charges and their Jewish charges as well. It's important to note both of these types of charges. 
And the thinking was they wanted to get Paul convicted. They wanted to get Paul killed. And so they wanted to get him convicted on the Roman charges. But if they weren't able to at least get him convicted on the Roman charges, they were going to try to get him convicted on the Jewish charges and get the case kicked back down to Jerusalem where the elders and the teachers of the law in the Sanhedrin would deal with them from there. Or at least that was their plan. Um, Tertullus, the lawyer, he uh, begins with uh, praise for Felix, which, you know, is customary. It's kind of like saying, your honor, your honor, right? Giving that respect, kind of buttering up, buttering him up a little bit. Um, but, but Felix, um, he was not as, as good as Tertullus made him seem. Um, he was actually a very wicked man. He was born a slave. Um, he was a brother to a friend of the emperor, and that's how he got his position as governor there in Jerusalem or in Judea. And uh, the historian at the time writes that Felix reveled in cruelty and lust and wielded the power of a king with the mind of a slave. And so they bring three charges against Paul. One was he was a troublemaker and he's stirring up riots. Everywhere you go, Paul, there's riots. That was true, actually, but it wasn't because Paul was stirring them up. Normally, it was because it was Paul's opposers who were stirring up those riots. But the charge was something that would threaten the unity and the authority of the empire. The second charge was Paul was the leader of a Nazarene sect. And they tried to make it seem as if Christianity was a group separate and apart from Judaism. Because if they could prove that, and they could prove that Paul was not really a Jew, that instead he was some kind of a cult leader, then his religious freedoms would be revoked around the empire, and he would no longer be able to preach the gospel under the protection of Rome. Now we know that Christianity uh, was, was not, at the time, was not separate. At the time, Christianity was very integral to Judaism at the time, and they were looked at as one, and Christianity was kind of like you know, a weird kind of belief within Judaism. The third charge that came against him was attempted temple desecration. And this was the Jewish charge. The Romans didn't care if the temple was desecrated or not, but the Jews cared about this. And so the, the Amen choir was there piling on with all these different charges. Yeah, that's right. You know, he did do all these things and he does stir up trouble and he is a, a ringleader of this sect and he was desecrating the temple. And they're just kind of there saying everything that they could to get Paul. Um, uh, convicted, and Tertullus, he felt that his case was airtight, and he felt like he would be proven right once Paul was eventually questioned, and it makes you wonder why Tertullus eventually uh, took the case to begin with, because when lawyers take cases, they'll normally listen to the case first, right? Have you ever seen those big billboards like, accident, question mark, like, call me, you know, we'll get you the best, you know, outcome for your case. When you call them, what they'll do is they'll say, so tell me what happened. And they're listening to see whether or not you have a good case and whether or not they can get you the money. <laughs> and if they feel like they can win your case and get the money, they'll say, we'll take on that case. But if they don't feel like they can win the case and get the money, they will turn you down. Anyway, I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> I just play one on TV. No, I'm just... <laughs> anyway... It makes you wonder what motivated Tertullus to take the case in the first place because there was no proof. The charges were completely baseless. He had nothing to bring to the courtroom to, to say, and this is why we believe what we believe. 
And so this was a very wicked prosecution. What can we learn from this? I think that this is exactly what Satan does. Satan uses lies to accuse you, to accuse me, in the same way that Tertullus accused Paul in that courtroom that day. In Revelation 12, um, Satan actually means adversary or accuser. That's what the word means. And in Revelation 12:10, it says, the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the ruling authority of his Christ have now come because the accuser of our brothers and sisters, the one who accuses them day and night before our God has been thrown down. But they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Again, another courtroom scene, right? That's gonna be played out. And they did not love their lives so much that they were afraid to die. And so what are some of the lies that Satan accuses us of? You're so narrow-minded as a Christian. You're so unloving, so insensitive to the needs of the people that are around you. Has what you've done in being a Christian really mattered? Has your life really counted all of those prayers, all of that Bible study, all of those people that you think you've somehow helped through counseling or even helped to become a Christian? Does that really matter? Where are those people now? You haven't done enough. You haven't worked hard enough. You haven't read your Bible long enough this morning, and you for sure didn't pray hard enough. These are the things that he tells us. How can God love you? Don't you see all of your faults, all of your flaws, all of your weaknesses, that sin that you committed yesterday? You're not good enough, you're not smart enough, you don't dress nice enough. How can God possibly use you? You're a horrible parent. Why don't you treat those kids better? Why aren't you more nurturing? Why aren't you more effective? Why aren't you more of a disciplinarian to those kids? You're letting them run amok. You're a horrible parent. Nobody likes you. Why are you here this morning? They don't really like you. You should have just stayed home. These are the things that Satan tells us. These are the accusations. These are the lies. Jesus says that Satan is a liar and the father of lies. But lies are all he has. In the same way with Tertullus, all he had was the accusation and the lies against Paul. That's all Satan has. And lies unravel when they're held up to the truth. I know for myself, you can even have, either have an excused conscience or an accused conscience. I have a very accused conscience. I'm whipping myself. When I wake up in the morning, I'm thinking about everything that I did wrong the day before. When I go to bed at night, I'm thinking of everything that I might do wrong the following day. When I get done preaching the sermon, by the time I sit down, I'll think of three or four things that I said wrong. You should have done this better. Da da da. That illustration could have been nicer. You could have preached that with more. I, I, I would have already criticized myself by the time I sit down. So don't criticize me, okay? No, I'm, no, seriously. If if you have something to say, I invite it. I welcome it. I'm just saying, I'm I'm very critical of myself, and. 
I think that some of us can be the same way. And we can be accused by the evil one, but we can also accuse ourselves. And I think in, in both cases, many of those things are based upon lies. We're not as bad as we think that we are. I mean, Jesus did die for us after all, right? God felt like there was some value in us with all of our faults, all of our flaws, right? Everything that we've done wrong, God still saw value in that and said, you know what, they're still worth it for my son to go and die for them. I'm not saying we need to walk around with our chests all puffed out like I'm the best, I'm the baddest. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying a lot of times it's not as bad as we think it is. That's all. And so how do we handle a wicked prosecution? Point number two, we handle a wicked prosecution with a righteous defense. A righteous defense. Acts chapter 24, verse 10. It says, when the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you've been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city, and they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way which they call a sect. I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets. And I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have, and there, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. Or those who are here should state what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin, unless it was this one thing I shouted as I stood in their presence. It is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. And so with Paul, no, no buttering up of the judge. He just states the facts. He just tells the truth. And that's really all that he had to do to defend himself. He didn't even need a lawyer. To the dissension defense, he basically says, I didn't have time to stir up a riot. I've only been in the city for 12 days. Five of them he's been incarcerated, right? It only gives me a week. I don't have time to plan some kind of a riot. And he says, I was just minding my own business. I wasn't messing with anybody. I wasn't arguing, wasn't stirring up any trouble. So the burden of proof is on them. To the cult leader defense, um, Paul doesn't deny that he's a follower of the way that they call a sect, but he refuses to say that the way, or Christianity, is separate from Judaism. Again, he keeps them together. He worships the God of our ancestors, same God. He believes everything written in the law and in the prophets. And his faith doesn't deny or denounce the Old Testament scriptures. Instead, his faith is the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. And so the distance between Paul and his accusers is not as great as they would have made it out to be. 
He has a hope in God just like they do. And it's a hope that's based upon the certainty of the resurrection of the dead, both the righteous and the unrighteous. Okay, lost my place, sorry. And it was because of the resurrection uh, to come that Paul strove to keep a clear conscience. Uh, he knew that both the righteous and the wicked would be resurrected, and he wanted to be ready to enter that day. What did I write here? He wanted to be, <laughs> he wanted to be ready to enter that day with nothing on his heart, nothing weighing him down, and nothing burdening him. <laughs> In 1 Corinthians 15, 12, look at what Paul says about the resurrection. He says, uh, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. Basically what he's saying is, if the resurrection didn't really happen, and you're saying that the resurrection happened, you're lying on God. That's what he's saying. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. Verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. What are you doing if there is no resurrection? Why are you here this morning if there's no resurrection? Verse 18, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. And so this is what Paul was on trial for, the gospel, the belief in the good news that God raises the dead, that Jesus died, was buried, and that he was resurrected again on the third day. And because of that, we know that when we die, God will raise us from the dead as well, those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ. Paul's righteous defense is good news for us, amen? He believed in the same resurrection that we do. It's the resurrection that gives courage to the cowardly. It's the resurrection that gives hope to the unsaved and to the saved. It's the resurrection that we don't deserve, but yet gives us motivation to keep a clear conscience before God and before man. To this third charge, the, the charge of temple desecration, um, he basically says that he, he was a ceremonially clean when he entered the temple that day. He did not desecrate the temple. He said, again, no crowd, no disturbance, and that those who basically made the accusation should have been there to make the accusation to his face, is basically what he's saying. How ridiculous, how ridiculous a trial. If we would have watched this on Judge Judy or on LA Law, we would have laughed at the entire thing. And that's about how crazy this trial was before Felix that day. What can we learn from this? When we're accused with the lies that we talked about earlier, we've got to simply tell the truth. Tell the truth. What's the truth? Ephesians 2 says, I'm alive in Christ. Ephesians 2 says, you're alive in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5 says, I'm a new creation in Christ and the righteousness of God. In 1 John 4, it says, greater is he that is in me than he who is in this world. 
Romans 1 says, I'm greatly loved by God. Philippians 4 says, I can do all things through Christ. Ephesians 2, Romans 8 says, I am God's workmanship and more than a conqueror. And you are too. That's the truth. And whenever the lies start coming your way, whether it be from yourself or from Satan, you need to break out your Bible or your tablet or whatever it is that you got the scriptures on nowadays, and you need to start telling yourself what the real truth is so that you don't give in to the lies of the evil one. And when we're persecuted, the gospel of Jesus has to be our righteous defense. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus died, was buried, and he rose on the third day. There's so many times I'm feeling down or bad about myself, and I say, you know what? Can't change the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. Can't rewind time. It's happened. Lots of people have died, but no one's risen from the dead except for Jesus. So because of that fact, I can feel good. The kids might be messing up. You know, might be getting in an argument with my wife. The church might not like me. I don't know. I don't care. Whatever it is. But you know what? Jesus rose from the dead. Amen. Jesus rose from the dead. Last point. A convenient judgment. A convenient judgment. Verse 22 of Acts chapter 24 is then, says, Then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, adjourned the proceedings. When Lysias the commander comes, he said, I will decide your case. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I'll send for you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe. So he sent for him frequently and talked with him. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. But because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. And so Felix delays his judgment until Lysias the commander came, which must have never happened because two years later, Paul is still in jail and Felix never ruled on the case. And so the problem wasn't that Felix needed more information. He had all the information he needed. It wasn't that he didn't understand the case. He understood the case. It was that he knew Paul was innocent, but he didn't want to frustrate the Jewish leadership by giving that decision and letting Paul go. He wanted to please the Jews so that he could win the next election. And so he tries to keep Paul in prison to pacify the Jews, but at the same time, he calls Paul to talk to him from time to time to see if he can get a bribe. I mean, what a corrupt, corrupt official, right? Instead of having conviction, Felix did what was convenient. Part of the reason, it says here that, that um, he was familiar with the way. He was familiar with Christianity. You might wonder, how is this governor, who was a, a Gentile, familiar with the way? It was because he was married to Drusilla, who was a, uh, who was a, Jew, a Jewess, and she was a hot mess. 
I mean, Felix was bad. Drusilla might have been worse. She was originally given in marriage at the age of 16 to the king of Syria. But Felix came along and he promised to make her life happy while she was married to this king. And she left the king and she went and married Felix. All of this happened before the age of 20. She came from a, a notoriously murderous bloodline. See if you recognize any of these people. She was one of three daughters of Herod Agrippa I. Her father, King Herod, put James the Apostle to death with the sword in Acts chapter 12. That was her dad. And then he also cut off the head of John the Baptist. I'm sorry, um, Herod Antipas was her uncle who cut off the head of John the Baptist. And then her great-grandfather was Herod the Great. He was the one who killed all the boys in Bethlehem when Jesus was born. So between Drusilla and Felix, they made this kind of an evil tag team between the two of them. Nature tends to take the path of least resistance. Think about water. Think about electricity. Think about Google Maps, right? It always sends you the most direct point, right? Think about human beings. We're lazy. Typically, we tend to take the path of least resistance. We tend to do what's most convenient for us. We'd rather relax than work. We'd rather avoid conflict than resolve it. And we'd rather live by convenience rather than conviction. And that's what happened with Felix. Paul had the chance to plead his case. But over those two years, it doesn't seem like over those two years that he was continually pleading his case before Felix when Felix would invite him in. It seems like Paul just decided to preach the word to Felix. I'm sure that was inconvenient for Paul to do, but he chose to do it anyway. He preached the word. He preaches about faith in Jesus, righteousness, self-control, and judgment. But Felix can only take so much before he gets scared. And he chooses that path of least resistance. Paul, leave me for now. Call you back when I'm ready to talk about Jesus. You know, this is our country. This is Roanoke. This is humanity. We love convenience. And we want a convenient Jesus. We want Jesus on our terms. We want a made-to-order Jesus. This part, this part, and this part of Jesus, I like, I love, and I want. That part, that part, and that part of Jesus, I don't like, I don't want. We can keep him over there. Paul didn't like how he felt when Peter was, pre or Paul was, I'm sorry, Felix didn't like how he felt when Paul was preaching to him about self-righteousness and self-control and the judgment you're making me feel bad about myself, Paul. I feel uncomfortable. And so he sends him away. And I get it. I don't like feeling bad about myself. I hate feeling bad about myself. And I don't think that we should try to make others feel bad about themselves. But the truth is the truth. The truth is the truth. We've always got to speak the truth in love to other people and unfortunately sometimes people feel bad as a result of that and we can't do anything about that and we've got to feel more concerned about making Jesus feel bad 
then we are concerned about making other people feel bad. Are you with me? And so Jesus said that we have to enter through the narrow gate. Um, the path to heaven is not the path of least resistance. You don't just wake up in the morning, drift through life, and end up at the pearly gates. I know there's that song about you can't get to heaven on roller skate. What is it? Can't get to heaven on roller skates. Something. I, roll right past those pearly gates. That's it. That's it. I, I don't know if that thing applies, if that illustration applies to what I'm saying. Basically, what I'm saying is that it, 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 it's not. You don't, yeah, you can't, thank you, John. You can't skate through life. You're not going to roll off the side of the bed and end up in the arms of God one day. <laughs> the path to heaven is through the Garden of Gethsemane. It's on the Via Dolorosa. That's the path to heaven. And Jesus holds out this chance to be part of his kingdom, to have a relationship with him based on love. And, and he calls us to follow him, whether it's convenient or not. He's not calculating whether or not it's convenient for us to do it. Oh, is this the right time for you? That's not what he's calculating. He's simply saying, you know what? I love you, and that should be compelling enough to make you want to jump out of your seat to come and follow me for the rest of your life. And in, for Christians, he puts us in situations that allows us to preach the gospel, whether it's convenient or not, just like he did with the Apostle Paul. In those situations, sometimes they're in season, sometimes they're great opportunities, sometimes it feels awesome, sometimes people ask us, can you please tell me about your church, tell me about the Bible, tell me about Jesus, and in those times, hallelujah, preach the word. But that's not all the time, that's not even most of the time. Most of the time, it's the inconvenient time. It's the time that you're at the checkout lane and there's 15 people behind you, and everybody's like, come on, hurry up, and you're thinking, boy, I should like talk to this person about Jesus. It's really inconvenient. Or it's the relatives like, oh, I know what kind of church you go to. And you're there for Thanksgiving dinner. And you're like, man, should I say something right now? It's the inconvenient times, typically, that are the opportunities with God, just like Paul. And so we've got to remind ourselves of this. I'm done. We're, we've got to remind ourselves of this truth. And we can't be surprised at the inconvenience of whether it's living as a Christian, preaching the gospel as a Christian. For some of us who are listening to the gospel, maybe you've never responded to the gospel before, maybe you're not a disciple, you can't wait for a convenient time. That's what Felix was doing. Come back when it's more convenient for me. Two years after this, there was another riot in Israel and Felix brutally intervened in order to keep the peace. This got him a lot of backlash from the Jews at the time, and he was kicked off of his post as governor, which is why Festus came in as the new governor. As far as we know, according to historians, Felix later drowned himself in a lake, and that's how he died. As far as we know, he never found that convenient time to respond to the gospel that Paul was preaching. And so if you have a disciple in your life 
this morning that's trying to talk to you about Jesus, don't push it off until later. Listen to them. God is using them to tell you the best news you've ever heard. That because he loves you, you can have your sins forgiven and be part of his kingdom at no cost. Let's put our faith in Jesus. Amen. And if you need to, repent and be baptized and have your sins washed away. Paul was on trial for the resurrection. I know I said I was wrapping up. I'm really wrapping up this time. Sorry. Paul was on trial for the resurrection. And in a sense, so are we. Because of our faith in Jesus and our hope in the resurrection, we're charged by wicked prosecution every day. Our enemy, the evil one, is always working to accuse and condemn us because of our faith in Jesus. But it's on the gospel that we take our stand as Christians. And it's through the gospel that we make our righteous defense. Because of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, we've been acquitted. We've been acquitted of the charges that have been brought against us, and we have the hope of the future of the resurrection. And while the world screams for convenience and ease, let's not follow the path of least resistance, whether it's in bringing the gospel or in responding to the gospel. Amen? Let's follow the Spirit wherever he leads us, and let's act on the opportunities that he places in front of us. Amen. Thank you, Tony. Let's all stand for one last song. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed today's sermon. Be sure to check back every Sunday for new sermons listed right here. Subscribe to us on YouTube and like us on Facebook to stay in touch with all that God is doing in the Roanoke Valley Church. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time.